What's up, pilot? Welcome back to A Crash Investigation, the podcast. I am your host, Kai Jordan, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the Ndola UNDC6 crash. This one is actually going to be really intense. Now, as always, do not forget to rate us on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on. The links to all of our social medias will be in the description box, and the ways in which you can support the podcast will be in the description box. And with that out of the way, let us officially get started. Alright, so a little bit of a disclaimer right here. I tried, like I legit tried, to look for different pronunciations of this name and it was hard because they're giving me different names uh, different ways in which i can say it rather so i'm just also going to touch in on a little bit of my african side um in this crash we're going to be talking about dach hammarskjöld sorry if i said that wrong i really do apologize i didn't mean to but that is who we're going to be talking about in relation to this crash and why it was so like massive 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 now we can get started sorry in advance so this was a scheduled flight for the 17th of september 1961 or the 18th of september 1961 local time its origin was elizabethville airport now known as luano airport in lumbumbashi the democratic republic of congo the destination was ndola airport now known as simon mwanza kwapepe international airport in ndola northern rhodesia now zambia a stopover was Leopoldville Njili Airport, now known as Njili International Airport, in Kinshasa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. The airplane used was a McDonnell Douglas DC-6. The company that was used for this flight was Transair Sweden for the United Nations. Now, the reason why they are using a Transair aircraft and not like an actual flight that is from Transair was because Dachamashold was an official for the United Nations, therefore he was always at risk of being assassinated, especially at this time. The captain of this flight was Per Eric Bohalonquist, who was 35 years old at the time of the crash. And I quote, Captain Halonquist started his flight training until 1953. In 1947, he was issued with a private pilot's license. A commercial pilot's license was issued to him in 1953. At about this time, he had further flight training for about four months with Air Service Training Limited England. He obtained his airline transport pilot's license in 1955. He was also the holder of a valid flight radio telephony operator's license number 4447. He was employed by Transair as a co-pilot on DC-3 in 1954 and was promoted to captain on DC-3 in 1955. In December 1959, he commenced flying as a captain on the DC-6 for Transair." End quote. In total, he had 7,841 flight hours with 179 of those flight hours on the DC-6. The first officer of this flight was Lars Olof Litwon. I'm sorry if I said that wrong, but he was 29 years old at the time of the crash. First officer Litton had his first flight training at a private Swedish flying school and obtained his private pilot's license in 1953. A commercial pilot's license was issued to him in 1955. He obtained his airline transport pilot's license in 1961. He was also the holder of a valid flight radio telephony operator's license number 4443. He was employed by Transair as a co-pilot on DC-3 in 1958. In December 1960, he commenced flying as a co-pilot on DC-6 for Transair. 
In total, he had 2,707 flight hours with 216 hours on the DC-6 aircraft. The flight engineer was Nils Goran Wilhelmsen, who was 27 years old at the time of the crash. Mr. Wilhelmsen was also the holder of a valid Swedish aircraft maintenance engineer license number MM-411. He completed a course at a Swedish municipal technical school for ground engineers during the years 1949 to 1951. During the years 1952 to 1957, he was employed as a ground engineer with the Swedish Civil Air Carrier and also with the Swedish RAF. He was employed as a ground engineer by Trans Air in 1957 and started working as a flight engineer on the Curtis 0-46 with Trans Air in 1957. He had 2,630 total flight hours with 311 flight hours on the DC-6. The reserve captain was Nils Erik Arhes, who was 32 years old at the time of the crash. Captain Arhes started his flight training in the Swedish RAF in 1947, where he remained until May 1954. In 1947, he obtained his private pilot's license. A commercial pilot's license was issued to him in 1948. Around June 1954, he was employed as a pilot with a Swedish air carrier engaged in agricultural flying. In 1955, he obtained a senior commercial pilot's license. He was given an airline transport pilot's license in 1956. He was also the holder of a valid flight radio telephony operator's license number 4402. He was employed by Transair as a co-pilot on DC-3 in 1955 and was promoted to captain on DC-3 in 1956 and on Curtis C-46 in 1958. He had 7,107 total flight hours with 122 hours on the DC-6. The weather conditions three and a half hours before the flight at Ndola Airport, they read as follows. Ndola, 17 September 1961, 7 o'clock GMT, surface wind direction 110 degrees north, speed 10 knots 18 kilometers or 12 miles per hour, visibility 5 miles or 8 kilometers. Present weather, fine, all right, haze, cloud, nil, end quote. So the flight from Elizabethville Airport to Leopold and Gili Airport was unproblematic. Then the aircraft took off again from Leopoldville at 9 minutes to 4 p.m. GMT. The estimated time of arrival was 25 minutes to 11 GMT. At 25 minutes to 9 p.m., they were passing over Lake Tanyarika, which was not on the direct route to Ndola. At 25 minutes to 10 p.m. GMT, the air traffic controller decided to make contact. He told this flight to descend from 16,000 feet or 4,877 meters to 6,000 feet or 1,829 meters. Now, before I continue, I just have to say, after I watched the whole episode on this flight, a crash investigation, Mayday, whatever you know it as, they said that basically the airports there, they were like very, very, very remote. Like they were basically in the jungle. And number two, the simple fact that the air traffic controller was not in the tower, so to speak, if you understand what I'm saying. I don't know how to explain it, but if you want like a deep, 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 analysis of what i'm saying check out that episode i will link it in the description 
box because I don't think I'm saying this correctly. Let's move on. So the aircraft was overhead in dollar at this time and there was no other radio communication. Red flag. So here I'm going to read from the final report. Here we go. Eyewitnesses saw the lights of the aircraft pass over Ndola Airport on a westerly heading and disappear from view. The aircraft failed to report for final landing instructions and although it was then believed that it had changed its intention and was proceeding elsewhere, overdue action was nevertheless initiated. The wreckage of the aircraft was located about 8 nautical miles from Ndola Airport on a bearing of 279 degrees through. Police arrived on the scene of the aircraft at 15 minutes to 2 p.m. GMT. Only one of the occupants was found alive and he subsequently died, meaning that the man, Dag Hammarskjöld, died in the crash and this caused international outrage a lot of people were wondering what happened to him why did he die because he was essentially one of the leading people part of the un specifically the un branch in sweden so a lot of people wanted to know what was going on why did he die etc Alright, so representatives from Sweden, the State of Registry, the International Civil Aviation Organization on behalf of the United Nations, the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations and Transair, the operators of the aircraft, were invited to participate in the investigation. So, the wreckage and, and I quote, because this is a long one, I hope you're ready. Examination of the site of the accident indicated that the aircraft had first struck the top of trees when on a heading of about 120 degrees at a shallow angle and at a moderate rate of descent. The first point of impact with the three tops is 66 feet higher than the point of impact of the nose of the aircraft with the ground. The linear distance between the two points is 760 feet, giving an average angle of descent after the first impact of 5 degrees. The propellers of the aircraft cut through the uppermost branches of the trees and the severed branches together with the pieces of the rubber from the propeller de-icing boots were the first items to be found along the wreckage trail. I'm sorry, before I continue, if you're wondering why I'm always stopping or why I sound so unsure, it's because this final report is so hard to read. Like, I do not know what they were doing. I understand that it was the 60s, but it is so hard to read. Apologies. The left wing tip was severed from the aircraft in an early stage, indicating that the aircraft was probably in a slightly left wing low altitude, and the swath out by the aircraft through the trees indicated an increasing angle of left bank. As the left outer main plane of the aircraft collided with the trunks of the trees, it was progressively demolished. At the same time, the propellers and the fuselage suffered increasing damage by impact with the trees and detached pieces were scattered along the wreckage trail. The nose of the aircraft with the fuselage center section empionage and right wing largely intact struck a 12-foot high anthill and the fuselage cut wheeled about the anthill swinging through the approximately 180 degrees and suffering complete demolition from further impact with trees and ground. Fire fed the fuel from the burst tanks, covered the main wreckage and spread 350 feet back along the wreckage trail. 
The intensity of the fire melted and fused most of the aluminium alloy from the wing center section and fuselage. The four engines were broken from their mountings and severely damaged by impact and subsequent fire. Essentially saying that person who survived initially was incredibly lucky and it's very unfortunate that that person died as a result of this crash. So the communication problems maybe. Here we go. I'm also reading from final report. It's also going to be shaky. I'm sorry. The aircraft obtained takeoff clearance from Leopoldville Tower on VHF and was airborne at 9 minutes to 4 GMT. The investigating board found no evidence to show that this aircraft had any radio communication after leaving Leopoldville until 2 minutes past 8 PM GMT when contact was made with Salisbury FIC. Communication with Salisbury FIC was Misinitiated, I'm sorry, I don't know, maintained, I'm so sorry. Maintained successfully until 28 minutes to 10 p.m. GMT when the aircraft was told to contact Ndola approach. At 25 minutes to 10 p.m. GMT, the aircraft contacted Ndola on 119.1, the frequency, and maintained VHF communication until the last contact at 10 minutes past 10 p.m. GMT when it was overhead the airport. There were no tape recording facilities at Indola for recording radio communications. I'm so sorry if that was so shaky. I don't know. Like, it shows if you try and find this final report. I know I'm going sideways, but if you try and find this final report, I'm telling you, you're going to have a hard time because I had a hard time trying to find this final report. And you can find this final report on our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. The link will be in the description. All right. So the investigators decided to reconstruct the flight, but nothing was found. The conclusions or the findings of these reports were the aircraft was correctly certificated and had been maintained in accordance with the approved maintenance schedule. No evidence could be found to suggest failure or malfunction of the aircraft control mechanisms, power plants or systems. The evidence at the crash site and the mass of observers' evidence as to the aircraft's behavior indicates that there was no technical defect or structural or material failure. The crew held valid licenses appropriate to their duties and had not exceeded the prescribed flight limitations. All navigational aids and radio facilities at Ndola were fully serviceable and operating at the time of the accident. The weather at that time of the accident was fine with all right smoke haze and the night was dark and there was no cloud. The moon was in its first quarter and set at 24 minutes past 10 p.m. GMT. I'm so sorry. I know I'm interrupting a lot, but I just love the fact that they decided to add a little bit of detail in terms of what the moon was like at that time. But finally, the pathologists have stated no medical cause for this accident has been found and that there exists no medical evidence of sabotage. So the cause of this crash, the investigating board is of the opinion that the evidence available does not enable them to determine a specific or definite cause. The board is of the opinion taking into consideration the extent of the destruction of the aircraft and the lack of survivors evidence that this possibility cannot be completely ruled out. The board is however satisfied on the weight of evidence available to it that it is an unlikely possibility. Meaning 
that there was no cause of this crash no one knows what happened no one knows why did it happen etc etc and to actually add on to that i read it somewhere where essentially this investigation was conducted by the zambian a crash committee sort of and essentially a lot of people were like oh what if they covered it up oh my gosh something happened this is a conspiracy but like oh my gosh something happened why are they covering it up maybe they just didn't want the un people to enter here what if it is the rebels in the drc for example it is a long thing but either way there were no recommendations because the cause wasn't found and just to finish off this episode i would like to give you some conspiracy theories as to what probably happened to this crash but i'm actually going to read you something in terms of what and why was Mr. Amashold actually in the area at that point? So after his death, Mr. Amashold was described by U.S. President John F. Kennedy as the greatest statesman of our century. He was a man with a vision of the U.N. as a dynamic instrument organizing the world community, a protector of small nations, independent of major powers, acting only in the interests of peace. The only person to be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize after his death, he established the first armed UN peacekeeping mission following the crisis in Suez. Just after midnight on 18 September 1961, he was heading to negotiate a ceasefire in a mineral-rich breakaway region of Congo where another of his peacekeeping missions was getting bogged down in the complex politics of decolonization and Cold War rivalry. So that is essentially what I was saying. People think that the rebels are like essentially some people in the DRC at that time, at that point, did not want him to enter and try and negotiate peace. They just wanted to essentially be left alone to their fighting. And you know how the UN is. The UN is all about keeping the peace. So that's one of the conspiracies. But... Some 30 years later, after the crash in 1992, two men who had served as UN representatives in Katanga just before and just after Hamashal's death, Conor Cruz O'Brien and George Evan Smith, wrote a letter to The Guardian claiming to have evidence that the plane was shot down accidentally by mercenaries. In their view, a warning shot intended to divert the plane to alternative talks with industrialists in Katanga, in fact, hit the plane and caused it to crash. So that was essentially what I was saying before in terms of what the May Day slash A Crash investigation people were saying in their episode about this flight. In 1998, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, led by Desmond Tutu, the late Desmond Tutu, published eight letters that suggested CIA, M15, and South African intelligence were involved in the sabotage of the aircraft. British officials responded that these were likely to be Soviet forages. I mean, let me just finish. In 2005, the head of UN military information in Congo in 1961, Bjorn Ege, told the Afton Post newspaper that he had noticed a round hole in Hamashal's forehead where he saw the body in the mortuary. It could have been a bullet hole, he said, and it had been mysteriously airbrushed out of official pictures. Let me finish. I know, I know, I know we just going down a rabbit hole and this is not why we are here. But I just want to finish this because I really do find it interesting. So, 
Over the past four years, Swedish aid worker Goren Bjorkhal, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, has carried out extensive research and British academic Susan Williams published a book on Thursday, Who Killed Hamashal? Both concluded that it is likely the plane was brought down. Mr. Bjorkhal began his study after inheriting from his father, who had worked in Zambia in the 1970s, a piece of the plane fuselage containing unexplained small holes. He tracked down 12 witnesses in whose accounts of the night three points appeared repeatedly. The DC-6 circled in the air two to three times before it crashed, a smaller plane flew above it, and a bright light flashed in the sky above the large plane before it went down. I know I could continue. I should probably make a podcast about this, but either way, it's kind of suspicious how there was no cause to be found, even though it is alleged that there are fuselage evidence that have bullet holes or just like small holes that cannot be explained. That is kind of suspicious. Moving on with the fact that there is a witness, there are actually 12 witnesses who say that there was another plane in that vicinity and yet the air traffic controller did not even notice it. That is incredibly suspicious. Yet again, this is only a conspiracy, but it is a really cool conspiracy to try and talk about. Sorry that I butchered names in this episode. It's... I'm sorry. I'm just really sorry. If you want to see some pictures about this, then definitely check out our Instagram link will be in the description where you can just, you know, look at some of the pictures that I found on Google so that you do not have to try and search it yourself. As always, thank you so much for listening. Do not forget to rate us five stars on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on. All the links to our social medias, you know, our Instagram, Patreon, buy me a coffee, etc. will be in the description box below. Thank you so much for listening once again, and I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.